welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friends. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad to be with you today, and I'm really looking forward to our time together. It has been a bit since I've done a series. I have two on the podcast. I have one on the spiritual disciplines and one on marriage, and actually my husband joined me on that one, so if you've not listened into those, I'd love you to do that, and I'll link to them in the main show notes. But today... We're starting a series here, working through one of the most well-known and loved sermons of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. I've pondered working through a book of the Bible for, I've looked at James or Ephesians, there's just a lot of good books to work through, but for some reason, this particular text in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 has been on my heart and mind to work through, so I'm taking you, friend, along with me on this journey through God's Word. This sermon is well known by people inside the church and even outside the church. St. Augustine described it as, quote, a perfect standard of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's well-known book, The Cost of Discipleship, was based off it, It even influenced Gandhi. He defined it as the finest collection of ethical teaching. He was wrong on that comment, and you're going to see why in our time today and in our future time together. We hear people use terms taken from the sermon in their everyday language, like turn the other cheek, or being salt of the earth, or following the golden rule. And I'm sure many people don't even know where that language came from. John Stott opened his very good book uh, called The Message of the Sermon on the Mount, Christian Counterculture, with this sentence. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. As believers, those of us inside the kingdom, we, we know parts of the sermon very well ourselves. We know we're not to be anxious. We know we're to put the kingdom first. We know we're not to lay up treasures on earth. How do we fully grasp and understand texts and put into practice texts like loving our enemies? If our right hand causes us to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic and let him have your cloak as well. And towards the end of the sermon are really hard words to hear. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So in our time today, as we begin this series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to work through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to discuss an overview of the sermon. I'm going to go over a little bit of hopes for our time together, and I'm going to cover more at the end because this is going to take us some time. We're going to be going over this for not just weeks or months, but maybe years. Um, I'm not sure how long. I haven't fully laid it out, so I'm not sure how many sessions, but it's going to be a bit, and I'm probably going to take some break weeks here or there to discuss other topics that come about, but we're going to keep coming back until we finish this sermon together. And why did I choose to work through this passage here at Thankful Homemaker? Well, it first kind of started, our pastor has been preaching through the book of Matthew at church, and we went through the Sermon on the Mount quite a while ago. But in our time, I picked up a commentary to read along with the sermon each week by Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
and it's called Studies and the Sermon on the Mount. And I highly recommend if you're able to pick up a copy, if you can work it in your budget, if you can pick it up and follow along with me, you will be greatly blessed. I'm going to link to it. I love it so much. I have it both on Kindle and the physical book. And then next, I did study through the Sermon on the Mount with a group of ladies here in my home. And it was just a good text to work through in a group setting. But my main reason were a couple convicting quotes that I highlighted from the introduction of Martin Lloyd's book that kept me coming back to doing a series here on the podcast with you. So I want to share a couple quotes as we begin to get started. And I'm going to refer to Martin Lloyd-Jones as the doctor because that's kind of how he's known. Um, Just in short, he was a medical doctor. And it's going to simplify me saying his name because I'm probably going to quote it quite a bit through this series. So this particular quote is from page 22 of his book. He said, a man may play a piece of great music quite accurately. He may make no mistakes at all. And yet it may be true to say of him that he did not really play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. He played the notes correctly, but it was not the sonata. What was he doing? He was mechanically striking the right notes, but missing the soul and the real interpretation. He wasn't doing what Beethoven intended and meant. And he continues, That, I think, is the real relationship between the whole and the parts. The artist, the true artist, is always correct. Even the greatest artist cannot afford to neglect rules and regulations. But that is not what makes him the great artist. It is the something extra, the expression. It is the spirit. It is the life. It is the, quote, the whole that he is able to convey. There, it seems to me, is the relationship of the particular to the general in the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot divorce. You cannot separate them. The Christian, while he puts his emphasis upon the spirit, is also concerned about the letter, but he is not only concerned about the letter, and he must never consider the letter apart from the Spirit, end quote there. So friend, I want us to grasp that when we know something is God's will for us and for his glory, that our hearts should be in such a place to do nothing else but to bring him honor. When we read the words of scripture with hearts ready to submit, this should be just That really should be, how do I say that? Who we are. That should be who we are because of the work the Lord has done in our hearts to change us. I'm camping in these verses, and I have one more quote here because of the doctor. And this is a big reason why I think you're going to want to camp in these verses with me. He said, here is the life to which we are called. And I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. End quote there. When I read through that quote and I wrote it out here, it brought tears to my eyes. I know we all desire to see changes in our lives and in our own homes and in our families and in our marriages and our relationships with our children. We want to keep killing sin in our hearts and lives. And we want to live more than just mediocre lives as Christians. We want to die to self and live to Christ. And I know you're here with me today because you desire to die to self and live to Christ. 
all of scripture is valuable. I'm not highlighting this over the other. And every teaching, though, I want to remind you, every teaching that is in this Sermon on the Mount is found in the in the epistles of the New Testament. So I know that these are important truths our Lord wanted us to grab hold of, not just in our heads, but that they would be captured in our hearts and rule every aspect of our being as we walk in the Spirit. So this, my dear friends, in the words of the doctor, is, quote, how the Christian is meant to live. Let's remember that statement as we work through these chapters together for a long period of time. And I'm praying the Lord will give us grace to place ourselves under and in obedience to the words of Jesus as he preaches to us the greatest sermon ever preached. I have logistics and helps I want to go over in this series, and I want to save it until the end is what I like to call my recommended resource section. So hang with me until the end today, and we're going to start to dig in. We're going to work through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. I'm reading from the ESV, and it begins, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So I'm working through the Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew, and we may reference at times the passages that parallel in Luke, but I'm camping mainly in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew was a former tax collector who came to follow Jesus and was one of the 12 disciples. His audience at the time of writing were his fellow countrymen, the Jews, and he wanted them to see Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and as the gospel reveals, salvation through Jesus is to all nations. Matthew wanted not just his fellow Jews to come to Christ, but for all the world to see Jesus and to come to repent and believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Matthew is laying before us in his gospel the theme of the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what life in the kingdom of God is like. And I love that Matthew put this sermon towards the beginning of his gospel. The Jews to whom Matthew were writing were looking for a king to bring them political freedom from the bondage of being ruled under the Roman Empire. Jesus gives us a sermon which lays out clearly his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and it's one that takes control of our hearts. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best. In other words, we're not told in the Sermon on the Mount, Live like this and you will become a Christian. Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. So Matthew 5, 1 said, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and then he sat down and his disciples came to him. So Jesus is heading to, as I would kind of quote, say, to take the pulpit and begin to teach the truths of the gospel of the kingdom that he came to proclaim. John MacArthur said, God's own son delivered the sermon. The greatest preacher who ever lived preached the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are one long sermon. We talk about those fire hose sermons we hear. And when I think of that, I think of preachers like Paul Washer or Vody Bakum or Steve Lawson, that there's just so much to take in. It's like that fire hose coming at you. So now can you imagine sitting around a mountain and listening to Jesus preach. This had to be the original fire hose sermon. Our verse in Matthew 5, 1 starts with Jesus seeing the crowds. Jesus was always among multitudes of people, it seems, healing and preaching and reaching out and touching the untouchables of society at that time. 
If we back up a bit into Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, in the, just the previous chapter, Matthew tells us Jesus was ministering to great crowds and teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. If someone in your town was doing this, great crowds would be gathering too. So as we begin here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had already been drawing crowds of people. Jesus had compassion on the crowds. We see it throughout the scriptures. In Matthew 9:36, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. And in Matthew 12:15, Jesus was trying to voice the opposition escalating. The Pharisees were coming at him then until it was the right time of his predicted betrayal and death. And then it says in the middle there, but Jesus seeing the crowds, again, it tells us then that many followed him and he healed them all. Jesus attracted great crowds because he loved all people. He showed great compassion for all, even in the midst of being tired and weary himself. His earthly body still functioned like an earthly body. He needed sleep and he got tired. I think of weeks when here we've had busy ministry times with many meals served or those in need of counseling and we're tired. And by the end of the week, I just want to withdraw. And I'm not sure in those moments I'd be like Jesus going out to the crowds. I'd probably be pulling away and just, I'm laying out another reason here why I am working through the sermon with you. I have been so convicted as I've camped in these scriptures of my selfish, sinful attitudes. And I I still am as I continue to read and reread this text and pray through it. As Matthew 5, 1 continues then, he went up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus went up, so he got higher above the crowds or away from the crowds. I'm not sure exactly there. Um, Doesn't necessarily mean that he went to the top of the mountain. He could have sat down on the side of the mountain and he sat down, which is a position that teachers in Judaism would normally take to teach. Rabbis sat down when they taught. If they were walking or moving while teaching, it was considered informal. But if you sat, if he sat down, you listened. There were many people there that were just drawn to Jesus because of the miracles that he was doing. But here is Jesus, the sovereign king of the universe, sitting on the side of the mountain, getting ready to preach to them what life in the kingdom is to look like. And the reality is that unless they were in the kingdom, They couldn't even apply or live out these principles that he's laying here in their own strength. They couldn't do anything that he was about to teach them on their own. The verse in Matthew 5, 1 continues, his disciples came to him. So Jesus is calling his disciples as he calls them using the term disciples that he also uses in other places like in Matthew 8, 23 or Matthew 9, 10 or Matthew 10, 1, many other places in scripture. And in the complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words, Bill Mount states on this particular term, disciples. He said, typically in the Jewish world, a disciple would voluntarily join a school or otherwise seek out a master rabbi. However, Jesus seeks out and chooses those whom he wants as his disciples. A dedicated disciple was generally expected someday to become a rabbi himself. Yet Jesus teaches his disciples that he will always be their rabbi, and they will have a lifetime of discipleship. Jesus' disciples are bound to him and to God's will. They are called to a lifetime of work and service, end quote there. So a disciple is a follower, just that's what the term means. And in the New Testament, not necessarily every use of the word denoted that they were a believer, 
But on the other hand, the New Testament is clear that everyone who is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ is a disciple. So those of us who have repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are true disciples of Jesus Christ. This sermon is also being addressed to Jesus' disciples. We just saw Jesus call his first disciples in the previous verses in Matthew chapter 4 in verses 18 to 22. And if you get time, take a peek there. Actually, if you could just read through Matthew chapters 1 through 4 and then continue on 5 through 7 so you get the full context would be really good. So the, the general public is open and welcome to listen to the sermon, and they've obviously gathered to do that. But it is specifically being addressed to Jesus's followers, to his disciples, which also means learners. They've made a commitment to following Jesus as the Messiah. And an interesting fact to note is in the whole sermon, there is not one call to repent. In Matthew 4, 17, it tells us, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It seems that this sermon was being addressed to those followers already committed to him. And Matthew 5, 2 continues and says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And I love how Matthew felt the need to say he opened his mouth. It tells me that Jesus is about to speak, and we need to listen. Matthew is making it clear that this is important. What I love it even more is we weren't there at the time Jesus preached this sermon. There was no sermon audio or YouTube, but through the living and abiding word of God, within the pages of these Bibles, we have all over our homes, in the palm of our hands, on our phones and devices, we get to hear the very words of God by men who spoke from God being carried by the Holy Spirit. Pretty powerful stuff. When the God of the universe speaks, We need to listen and not only listen, but we need to do what he tells us to do. And in the scriptures, to teach means to pass on the truths of God's word. And we as disciples are meant to be learners. As the truth is taught, we are to hear it and process it with the hope that it will affect our hearts and minds and we will be shaped into the likeness of our teacher. And then we will continue to take that teaching and pass it on to others. Jesus is laying before us a standard of living that is countercultural to the world in every way. As we work to, through the Beatitudes over the next weeks together, we're going to see it is, well, the Beatitudes, but also Sermon on about, but specifically the next part we get into is going to be the Beatitudes. We're going to see, as John MacArthur states, to live by the standards he, referring to Jesus, gives here, is to live a life of blessed happiness. Here is an utterly new approach to living, one that results in joy instead of despair, in peace instead of conflict, a peace that the world does not understand and cannot have. It is a blessedness not produced by the world or its circumstances, and it cannot be taken away by the world or by its circumstances. It is not produced externally and cannot be destroyed externally. And he continues, The teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are for believers today, marking the distinctive lifestyle that should characterize the direction, if not the perfection, of the lives of Christians of every age. Unfortunately, those standards do not always characterize Christians. 
The world's standards and objectives too often have engulfed believers and conformed them to its own image, squeeze them into its own mold. Jesus's new way of living comes from a new way of thinking, and the new way of thinking comes from a new life. Here are God's standards for those created in his own image and recreated into the image of his own dear son. End quote there from Pastor MacArthur. So internal changes bring external changes. What is on the inside will manifest itself on the outside. What we are determines what we do. Our character comes before our conduct. When our attitudes and our thinking are right, our actions will be right. The standards laid before us in the Sermon on the Mount go beyond those in the law of Moses. Jesus is calling us not only to right actions, but right attitudes. And friend, this is impossible to accomplish on our own strength, in our own strength, as fallen human beings. This sermon lays out clearly that we are utterly helpless without God intervening in our lives and causing us to be born again. Because if you remember when we talked about this in episode ooh, 84 on sanctification, we are dead. We are not reaching out for the life preserver because we can't. We are dead in our sin. We are lying at the bottom of the ocean dead. Dead people can do nothing. We need a new birth because only those with God's spirit at work within them can fulfill the demands set before us in this sermon. As we work through the sermon together, I pray we will see even more of our great need for Christ. This is huge. I want us to grasp this, ladies, because this is what makes the difference in our homes and our families and our responses and our attitudes and how we go about our work, everything, everything. It is only because of the gift of his righteousness through salvation in Jesus Christ can we live up to the divine standard demanded by a perfect and holy God. The sermon would leave us undone in our own strength. In the words of the doctor, there is nothing that so leads to the gospel and its grace as the Sermon on the Mount. Living out the principles set before us in the sermon is God's design for us to truly live lives that are filled with joy, peace, and contentment. We all desire to be great evangelists and point others to Christ. If your life is obedient to the principles in the sermon, it will be your greatest evangelism tool. We need to verbalize the gospel. We need to speak it right. It's by the hearing of the word. That goes without saying. But our life should be attractive to an outside watching world. We should desire not just our words, but our lives to point to Christ. And that should be evident in our homes, to our children, to our husbands, to our lost family and friends that we continually come in contact with on a regular basis. So what's another reason I want to work through this sermon with you? Because a life obedient to God's word is a life that is pleasing to God. I desire to please God with my life, and you're here with me, so I know that you do too. This teaching is not just for pastors or seminary professors, but friend, it is for us. This teaching is for every single Christian. Not one of us, if we are in Christ, is exempt. Quoting the doctor again, all Christians are to be like this. And I want to end with this quote from the doctor as we close. And hang with me again. I have the kind of the logistics coming after the closing today. So let me start or let me sort of end here with this quote from the doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount, men would know that there is a dynamic in the Christian gospel. They would know that this is a live thing. They would not go looking for anything else. They would say, here it is. And if you read the history of the church, 
you will find it always it has always been when men and women have taken this sermon seriously and faced themselves in the light of it that true revival has come. And when the world sees the truly Christian man, it not only feels condemned, it is drawn, it is attracted. Then let us carefully study this sermon that claims to show what we ought to be. Let us consider that we may see what we can be. For it not only states the demand, it points to the supply, to the source of power. God gives us grace to face the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we become living examples of it and exemplifiers of its glorious teaching, end quote there of the doctor. So my friend, I pray in our time together as we work through this over the long haul together that we will become living examples of this sermon and exemplifiers of its glorious teaching within our own lives and that it will be clear to our family and our friends and our church family because I want us to remember Jesus is enough always. So I'm so grateful for your time today and I want to share some recommendations. So hang with me. So if you're listening into this today on a podcast app, hit subscribe if you've not yet, because that way you won't miss any of the teachings. It'll just come right into your podcast app. And then before I leave, just a little bit of housekeeping here with you and some resource recommendations, some some thoughts in our time. So I'm hoping to do two episodes a month, still coming out on the second and fourth Tuesdays of the month. So this is coming out September 22nd. The next one will not come out till whatever that second Tuesday is in October. Um, these are really, and that will, then from there, we will work on Matthew chapter five, verse three will be our next one. These are really rich chapters in God's word. And our time in studying Matthew and church has really whet my appetite to using my husband's favorite term to marinate in these scriptures. So you're going to marinate with me for a season, for a long season together. We're going to go very slow. So I have just a few thoughts as you follow with me. And again, these are optional, just some suggestions, okay, to deepen your time in the Word. There's so much doctrine in these verses and practical application. So study with me. Maybe commit to reading these verses weekly, the three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7. Maybe do that. Do what I've mentioned before. Go back and read Matthew 1 through 4. And then bring this into it so you get the context laid out. Maybe memorize a portion of the sermon or the whole Sermon on the Mount. You can memorize three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, or just the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The Bible Memory app is my favorite tool for memorizing scripture. There's already some groups in there online you could join to do that. You can start your own group or just put these in these verses in yourself. It makes it really easy to pull them in and the version you like to memorize in. If I get motivated to start a group, I will let you know that I'm put it on here, but I am still plunging, plunging along through um, Romans chapter eight very slowly. So I'm not very far. So I haven't quite been ready to do that yet. But if for some reason I do, I will let you know that. Grab a copy of my favorite resource and follow along. You're going to have a lot of time between episodes because remember, I'm only going to do two a month. And my top resource next to studying God's word in these chapters is the book I mentioned earlier, Studies and the Sermon on the Mount by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I'll link to that. But I'm a bit biased of his teaching. I'm utilizing quite a few other commentaries and resources as I'm working through this. But I'll tell you, they all seem to be referring back to his quite frequently. So that's where I find myself going. Um, 
I it's my personal opinion, but I think it should be a staple in everybody's home and I think everybody should read it. You need it, grab a copy, read it along as we go. You'll you'll be thankful you did. So work it in your budget. It's a little cheaper on Kindle even. It's a, just a great resource. And I'm going to link to all my main resources I'm using to put these episodes together in the main notes at the blog. I'll put a few in the podcast part, but if you really want the full gist of it, head over to the blog. Um, and I'll put some of the longer quotes and stuff there too for it. So I will share any other maybe online sermons I came across or other good study resources, even some freebies online for you to um, enhance your study time. I would love to do that. And then honestly, as I'm saying all this, because I don't want your head spinning and you're getting overwhelmed, if all you have time to do is pop your earbuds in or your headphones on and listen to me, that's good too. I'm so grateful. That's just perfect. And I'm so glad you're here and that you're taking this in because you know what? It's still going to be good and it's going to make you want to pick up God's word and read it. So I love that. So that's all I have for you today. So my friend, I pray you have a very blessed week. Mm -hmm.